The Association of British Insurers, or the ABI to their friends, is one of the financial services industry's leading trade bodies, representing life companies and platforms, and general insurers too, but we're less interested in them, and covering a large swathe of the manufacture and sometimes distribution too of financial products. In this episode, I talk with Rob Yule about the ABI's priorities and interests, including auto-enrolment, advice and guidance, social care, and pension dashboards. So, Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So I'm really interested to hear from you what's kind of on the ABI's to-do list. What's what's the stuff that you're focusing on? And you are your director of policy, deputy director of policy. Sorry, just oh, start there. It's a very long job title, which is assistant director and head of long-term savings policy. I tend to just use the latter bit. <laughs> Still not as long as Angela Rayner's though, is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, no, that's great. So you're doing life and savings policy stuff and... Yep. Okay, so and obviously I, I, yeah, I've had a lot of contact with the ABI over the years, so I've got some some insight to what you're working on, but, but the world's moved on, so I'm really interested to hear from you. What's your focus of attention for 2022 and beyond? Okay, very happy to talk through that. So every year we uh, look at what's coming down the track and what we'd like to do proactively, as well as all the reactive policy and regulatory stuff that you have to do. Uh, priorities for 2022. So we set and then we have a, a large new thing, which is the engagement season campaign that we're taking forward with the, the PLSA. That does fit with everything else we're doing. And of course, everything is connected to everything else. So the more proactive, forward-looking things we wanted to cover included future of autumn enrollment. Got an event on that later in the year. And the engagement season, to an extent, fits in there, as does the small pots work that we're doing with PLSA and a whole range of industry participants. Advice and guidance is second area. You won't be surprised to hear that. And that also links to more work on disclosure generally and what's happening in retail investments as well, as well as the post-pension freedoms retirement market. And then that in turn links to the third proactive area around social care and later life more generally, and very happy to expand on that. And then all the other ongoing stuff that that you would expect, and the the biggest one of those at the moment is pension dashboards. Um, We did put out at the beginning of the year what we think is the biggest piece of consumer research specifically on dashboards that Britain thinks did for us and our own vision for pension dashboards. There's also some big organisational priorities that you would expect around climate and ESG, solvency two reform, it's huge for the insurance industry, consumer duties, the number one conduct priority, and also what the industry can do itself in terms of quality and diversity and inclusion, promoting apprenticeships, that kind of thing. But uh, generally not my patch. Okay, there's a lot to dig into there. Let's go back to auto-enrolment. There seems to be pretty strong consensus, 2017 recommendations, you know, in terms of bringing the age down, just tweaking the, the contribution calculations. You know, I don't think there's much resistance to that kind of stuff. So I'm interested in your take on whether this government is actually going to get that through. Guy keeps promising it, but we still haven't seen it. Maybe it'll be in the Queen's speech in a week or so's time. 
So, so there's that. And then, you know, where can we go beyond that? That'd be really interesting what the API thinks is A, possible and B, desirable with, with how we take autonomic through from here. Yeah, okay. So will we see it? Will this government push it through? I do believe that, that they are considered to doing it. It's one of a number of areas where there could be some ongoing discussions between DWP and Treasury. The outstanding questions with implementing the auto enrollment review recommendations, let alone increasing contributions, are a threefold. Is it okay to increase pension contributions during cost of living crisis? What's the impact on employers? What's the impact on the exchequer? But th- those have always been the questions and needs to tackle it sooner rather than later. So there's a great degree of consensus. It's a question of when rather than if, but also a question of how do you do it in one go or phase it in? We think you should phase it in. Arguably, that's already started because the lower earnings threshold for band earnings was frozen. Uh, that could be the step, first step to reducing it. it. needs primary legislation to eliminate it altogether. So th- let's get the ball rolling as soon as we can with that. As for the rest of future of enrollment, the big question is contributions. Again, how, not just when, to what extent should it be, should the increased contributions be borne by employers or employees? And then all the other important techie points about re-enrollment, there's still outstanding questions about investments, disclosure, as well as the really contentious stuff about refunds, which has come on the agenda again recently in the context of smallpox, but also in the context of cost of living crisis. And we've heard from customer contact centers, especially vulnerable customer teams, more customers calling in a crisis saying, this is my only asset and I need it for this particular reason. And it seems justifiable, but if you open that box and how far do you go? So we want to look at those questions in more detail. That's really interesting. And I think that question of the household financial resilience and that emergency pot of money that could make such a huge difference to people's lives and millions of households that have got literally no spare cash in the bank and a buffer of even like £500 would make such a difference in moments of crisis. But the trade-off is if you start looking to the pension system and the auto-enrollment system to deliver that, everything gets much more complicated really quickly. So, so there's some, some awkward trade-offs there. Presumably, the ABI does not currently have a firm policy position on what good looks like around this. You're just looking to explore it further. Is that fair? We are exploring it in more detail. Yeah, that, that's the question. So we, we've been through some of the pros and cons, and it, it's very easy to say, building on what you just said, that pensions can't solve everything, but they do have a part to play in those broader financial resilience questions. And just coming back to your earlier points, I mean, I think there's a consensus that contribution rates are not where they would desirably be if you're looking at it in terms of adequacy of retirement provision. And you know, you made the points about cost of living crisis. So again, there are trade-offs there. But is it realistic to aspire to see this government legislate now or within this parliament to just sort of more to drop changes somewhere in the next parliament or even the one after, you know, a few years down the line, we'll we'll put in place the legislation now to increase the contributions, but but no pain now. It's just, you know, this is how we do things. If, if we kick it far enough down the road when it actually comes into effect, look, look what they did with the state pension, legislated in 1995, and it didn't start going up until 2010. 
you know, could could we look to some something like that for this government? Mm, I think one step at a time, and we find ourselves asking for legislation more than you might expect. And first things first, get the autumn enrolment review recommendations done. That needs legislation. Everyone supports it. We know what needs to happen. Get that done first. It does need consultation about when and how. And I would like to see that happen with an ambitious timetable for when it takes place. It seems to be a broad consensus about the number around uh, you know, trying to get up to around 12%. But there are important questions about whether that's right for everyone. Will it be overseeing for some people? To what extent you use engagement as a tool? And how should it be split between employer and employee? All important questions. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's lots of moving parts here and you can't, it's very hard to look at any one aspect in isolation. The point you've just made around access, early access to those pots of money becomes more salient if you're then starting to push the contribution rates up. So possibly you've got to look at the two in parallel. You can't just focus on the contribution rates in isolation. So, okay. And then for now, what we rely on is encouraging people to take more of an interest in their retirement savings. And so we're using a mixture of auto-enrollment to get them to a kind of base level of saving, and then we try and talk to people. So you mentioned the engagement season. I appreciate it's still a bit of a work in progress, but can you give us any more about what that might look like and how, again, what the ABI thinks good would look like in, in terms of that, because your members are throwing some not insignificant sums of money at this. Yeah, well, I think what's one thing to say immediately We've been really pleased with the response. It was fairly straightforward to get what is a potentially complex agreement over the line with PLSA, a wide range of firms backing it, and a generally very positive reception when it landed. One of the questions that we had was, okay, so how far is a million pounds or more going to get you? You won't even pay for the stamps on comment at all. But you know, hopefully it's reassuring to know that when PLSA won't be stuffing envelopes and licking stamps to send out to millions of people. What your million pounds pays for is the structure of the campaign. So hiring a campaign manager, hiring creatives to build the campaign, some central activity, and where the real value is from having such a wide range of firms involved is that they can reach their tens of millions of of customers with some pretty basic messages in terms of what good looks like is people's response to those. And your former colleague, Nathan Long, has been banging on, uh, I say in a polite way, about engagement measures. And I can hear his voice in my head now. <laughs> and that's received support from others as well. So you know, is there's a wide range of things that you can use to, to measure engagement. Really, we talked a bit about content. We want to leave that to creatives to decide but the steer we've had is keep it simple focus on pension basics make sure your details are up to date those kind of things just understand more about your pension to start with it's a three-year campaign we can build on it from there so okay that's good to hear three-year campaign something i was ranting about on a recent podcast was around pension providers capacity to actually communicate with their savers and this kind of links back a bit to auto enrollment and how good their databases are in terms of having people's email addresses and, and actually being able to send messages to their customers. Do you, do you have any insights or thoughts around that or, or is it just they're going to have to sort of stick stuff in the post to them? It varies widely by providers. 
we've done a lot of work, you know, the past few years about Gunaways and the challenges that the industry faces with out-of-date postal addresses. If you have out-of-date email addresses, more of a problem because it's harder to trace them. I have to expand on what we've what we've done in that space. But yeah, firms vary, very, very widely. Uh, one thing that we have discussed in the context of small pots is having people's personal email addresses, not just their work addresses, because if they uh, move from job to job, your only contact is their work email address, then it's that's not much use to you once they're in a new job. And you mentioned small pots there. Let's just stay with that for a moment because it feels like that whole project sort of run out of steam a bit. It's like, oh, this all looks a bit difficult. Trustees are a bit worried about fiduciary duties. So just sending pots of money to places the members didn't ask them to suddenly looks a bit awkward. Just, I mean, tell me I'm wrong, but it just feels like the industry's gone, oh, this is really hard. Let's just wait for the dashboard to come along and solve that problem for us. Is, am I being unfair there? Uh, yes, yes, you are being unfair. I, it is difficult. But uh, that doesn't mean it's, it's run out of steam. So it's another area where we've been working with PLSA and a whole range of others. And that's been very collaborative and constructive. So keep an eye out for a report in the coming weeks. And that goes into more detail about the policy options from here, different ways that you might solve the problem, where there's a stock problem and where there's a flow problem for future transfers. Does talk about lessons from dashboards. A couple of things I would say that I thought it was obvious from the start that a market-wide solution would need legislation. I don't think we need to be shy about that. I said earlier, we find ourselves asking for legislation doesn't always go down well, but at a basic level, Occupational schemes can do a bulk transfer without consent using existing legislation. Contract-based schemes can't. There have been examples where firms have moved people from a particular fund to another or a particular product to another and cleared with their IGCs and the FCA. So it's not impossible, but moving from one provider to another without their consent is a different matter. Where trustee appetite is a factor... They have a, a duty to act in members' best interests, and and they will, and they'll scrutinise it. And uh, there could be transfers between occupational schemes without consent to help towards this problem. But if, as a policymaker, you know what you want the outcome to be, then that leads you to to legislation as well. Learning from the dashboard, and this is one of the areas that I think Potfollows member failed around 2014-15 is that there wasn't an implementation project to back up the legislation. So the, the dashboards legislation much more detailed than the populist member legislation in terms of the, the powers that government gives itself and maps, which is interesting. And of course, the, the, the pension dashboard programme yeah. itself. You don't need something on that scale for a small pot solution. But you might need some kind of industry or some kind of industry government partnership that has you know, adequate governance and funding to give it credibility and to make it happen. And do you think we'll see that in this parliament? <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's a question of parliamentary time, I guess, but also DWP priorities. They've got a lot on their plates. And I think industry's top priority would be water enrolment review recommendations. But one thing we're looking at and then would expect 
DWP to is the extent to which the existing legislation on automatic transfers is sufficient. I'm not sure it is, but it's at least the basis for the new legislation. Of expanding that to encompass contract-based, IGC-governed, automatic. So the automatic transfers legislation, it was the legislative term for portfolios member from Pensions Act 2014. Okay, so I, it, it actually, this is your fault, Rob. I went back and looked at the ABI's Frontier Economics paper from last year, I think, around mm-hmm. the kind of decumulation process and, and where people are at with that. And I was struck, I mean, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I think there's a lot of very sensible suggestions and thoughts coming out of the API around that, around how we can do more to help people with their decumulation, decision-making at the point when they first dip into the pensions, and critically, and subsequently. You mentioned advice and guidance, and I was also really struck by the FCA's investment strategy paper they put out towards the end of last year, where they seem to be opening the door to giving providers more latitude to engage with their customers and to, to nudge and steer their customers. And then, of course, we've got the consumer duty coming down the tracks, which you've also mentioned on this call. So I'm sorry, I've just thrown a lot at you there, but I'm really interested in what you are looking for around advice and guidance, what, what the APIs are focusing its attention on. Yeah, so there's a lot of good work going on in the industry on advice and guidance. We'll come back to the role of Maps and Money Helper, because I think it's a big role. Our focus has mostly been about accessing pensions because we think that is where the need is most acute and so is the risk of harm. But we fully support the idea of shifting boundary in terms of getting started investing. And that's where the FCA's focus in the consumer investment strategy has been. And also enabling firms to play back information they have about the customer to help them make decisions in their own interests. So these are slightly different areas, but all all connected. In terms of what the FCA or Treasury could do, there's a sliding scale. So they could fiddle about with PERG, the perimeter guidance, again, to make it very clear what it can and can't do in certain situations. What we said in that paper is what the outstanding question from pension freedoms that wasn't dealt with by investment pathways is helping customers make decisions about withdrawals. To what extent can a provider say this is a sustainable income without that being a personal recommendation? Of course, it's difficult territory because does a customer actually want sustainable income? What are their other sources of income? What are their other assets that they could use? And it goes without saying that people would benefit from receiving regulated financial advice, but we know that most people won't. So there's a sliding scale of interventions from tweaking the existing guidance all the way to new regulatory permissions around personalised guidance. And similar conversations in different parts of the regulated world. It's not just about accessing pensions, it's about getting going investing as well, and potentially switching between investments. Okay. So, and you, I was interested, really, you linked pension freedoms across to social care. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think there are still some huge challenges in how we help people to think about the long-term management of their accumulated savings and retirement. So, so what's the ABI's interest in the social care dimension there? 
So there's a few areas of interest, a few reasons for doing it. So first of all, there's there's an existing market, a small one, but uh, a market to help people cover their care costs one way or another. So there are immediate needs annuities whereby a customer can, or, or their carer, family member can cover the person's care fees for the rest of their life. It's typically paid directly to a care provider and it's tax-free in that context. And there are some life products that pay out early if someone has a care need. So it's whole of life or critical illness, something of that kind, but doesn't only pay out in that event, it pays out if someone has a care need. So there's potential for those to grow. There's also potential for people to use their other assets, the pensions, and that's how it looks to pension freedoms, or their property. Meanwhile, there's a major piece of social care reform happening, and part of a role is making sure that policymakers and other stakeholders have a realistic view about what the industry can do and how people can use those products to pay for care. Financial services and people using their own assets will not solve all of the government's social care problems because a large number of people won't be able to pay anything, a large number will interact with the state system in in some way. We're going to have from next year a more generous means test. That means that some people will use some of their own assets, but also rely on local authorities. So that the number one area that people will benefit from is help to navigate that system, both understanding the care system and how it works, but also understanding how they can use their their own assets in the best way to pay for it, either in advance or very commonly at the point that they need it. Uh, And that's where there's another role for MAPS and Money Helper. So in the report you mentioned earlier, we talked about the need for ongoing guidance throughout retirement. Delighted to see that MAPS very quietly in its delivery plan for the, the next year or the next three years talks about a new service for financial well-being for later life. And it's not clear to us yet what exactly that covers, but social care is part of it, as well as things like power of attorney, wills, and protecting yourself from scams. And we think MAPS has a role in coordinating guidance that people can get from local authorities or from financial advisors or others about understanding social care. That's really interesting. And I, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think MAPS is the the obvious party to go to, to play that, as you described it, that coordinating role to just kind of sit in the middle, not really deploying significant assets themselves because they don't have a lot of money, but just coordinating the resources of others to put the right information into people's hands to enable good outcomes to occur and for, for the, the use of those assets to be as effective as possible. Yeah. And one of the important things to say on social care, another report to look out for, we commissioned the Pensions Policy Institute to do some work to try and map out who's got what kind of assets, where, how might that change over time, and how will those interact with the proposed system that we're going to have from next year? Oh, that's really interesting. Can you give any indication of when the, when the PPI might produce that report? We are reviewing an early version at the moment, uh, trying to get our heads around it. And really interesting stuff. It and is it, from the PPI. <laughs> yeah. Good. And they uh, did some work for us around 2019 about social care and prospects of different 
types of products or ideas and how they could be used to, to pay for care. And it updates but broadens that analysis. So, so I was going to ask you about that because reading through the government's latest social care proposals, which as far as I can see, and I don't claim to be an expert, it's for quite a long way short of actually fixing the problem. It's just it's slightly better than we had before, but it's still not a great solution. And particularly for people with modest means, there's still a, the, the risk of some fairly catastrophic losses mm-hmm. in the way that the, the scheme is structured. You know, the really wealthy people will lose some of their wealth, but they'll still be fine. And the really poor people will just have most of it paid for by the state and you know, there's not much we can do about it. It's the people in the middle, people with sort of low hundreds of thousands of wealth who could actually lose quite a significant chunk of it under the government's new proposals. And I was struck by the reality that for most people, the cost won't be significant, but then for a small number of people, they will be very significant. And that says to me, you know, why do you not have an insurance scheme? Because collectivizing the risk and paying a premium up front to insure against that catastrophic risk is, is the logical place to go here. But we don't have a market like that. Is there any potential for the insurance sector to produce a some kind of a long-term care insurance policy. You pay a premium at the point of retirement, and then if you get catastrophic costs, that policy will pick up those costs. Is that is that possible? So this is a difficult area. And to an extent, the, the idea of a cap is risk pooling, especially if you take into account the idea of a, a levy to, uh, to pay for it. But as you say, clearly it doesn't cover everyone's costs doesn't even cover the catastrophic costs for everyone. It only pays for the care costs, not the so-called hotel costs that beyond the cost of care. Ensuring that risk is difficult for a number of reasons. For one thing, there's quite a likelihood of it happening. Secondly, the payout would be very high because it, you know, by definition, it's a catastrophic cost you're trying to cover. If you're trying to ensure up to the cap, in inverted commas, then you're also taking on significant political risk because the cap will change over time. And by the time you or I need care in, what, 30, 40, 50 years' time, a lot can change policy-wise in terms of medical progress and longevity. So it's more realistic, as I said earlier, that you would have products that do something else that are life insurance products, say, or critical illness payout, a predefined sum when you have a care need. So there's potential there. Also, given that people don't really want to think about their care needs, that they use assets that they already have and are helped to make use of those in the best way. But to do that, then you need some kind of incentive or at least removing some of the disincentives or the risk. So if people were to use money from their DC pensions. If you're lucky enough to have, say, £100,000 left when you're 80 plus and you have a care need, it would make sense that you could use that to buy an immediate needs annuity without having to withdraw it and pay 40% plus tax on it. That could go direct to a care provider in a tax efficient way. That would help. If you have that money left and then you don't have a care need, it would make sense that that could go to your beneficiaries, as is the case now, but tax rules might change. So for people to plan in that way, they need some sense of certainty and policy stability. Yeah. 
yeah, okay, point made. <laughs> so, and you know, quite reasonably, you can't expect one government to, to bind the hands of a subsequent government. So we always have to accept that political risk and things will change. And the government of the day has to have the freedom to implement the policies it thinks are appropriate at that, at that time. Yeah, but I think there's certainly a role for the industry to play. That's what we do is help people to make use of their income and their assets in the best way. And people do need help navigating the system. And the thing we've been banging on about for years about engagement, getting people to advice and guidance is very pertinent here, even if it's people in later life and their family members. So I just want to come back to dashboards briefly. We talked about dashboards a bit earlier on. So there seems to be a bit of a head of steam building up in the industry to say, look, actually, we're going to take it, our data cleansing is turning out a bit slower and a bit more complicated than we expected. And we're a bit busy right now. Can we have a bit more time on this? Is the dashboard program going to get pushed back? Is, are, things going, are things going to slow down? Or, or do you think it's going to get delivered on time? I think from our point of view, the timeline's okay. I mean, it's not to be too blase about it. Uh, my members are listening saying, what's he saying? Rob but, said, Rob yeah. said. <laughs> but, so our response to staging consultation said, it's ambitious, but it's achievable. I know there are challenges elsewhere in the industry. There's a couple of outstanding questions. And FCA's expectation is that basically everyone it regulates got to deliver by this time next year, more or less. Whereas originally they'd talked about possibly different timetables for the more complex products. So I would hope for some fragmentism there. And it's, you know, our members have always been in a position where they're more generally more digitally enabled and are able to, to deliver this stuff. As long as there is enough notice and as long as all the other pieces are in place. So we're still waiting on some technical details. They need to know exactly when and how to connect to technical infrastructure. And you know, if they're doing so via a third party, to, but all those pieces need to be lined up. So our only caveat was industry can't be blamed if it wasn't their fault. Like if there wasn't something, you know, if there was a piece missing. Thinking back to Pension Freedom's introduction, there was some very late additions to the regulatory landscape. We need certainty as soon as possible, but broadly speaking, we're okay with the timetable. Okay, it's good to hear. And the last thing I wanted to touch on, again, we've mentioned in passing, is consumer duty, which to me looks like potentially quite a big thing. And I appreciate it's not your direct personal sort of policy area, but I know you, you, you've looked at it. So how big a deal is this going to be for ABI members? How, how much difference is it going to make? Or is this just kind of an extension of existing FCA regulatory principles? I'd be interested in your thoughts around this. I don't think I can say too much about consumer duty, but that's always been the debate. We didn't oppose it, as I know some parts of the wider financial services industry did. Yeah, firms are working through how to demonstrate that outcomes are, are better and you know, how to answer those uh, kind of questions and exactly what it means. But broadly speaking, we got that this is another tool for FCA to go after the bad guys, especially around the, the fringes of regulation. And that's that's great. But we need a, a good sense of what's expected of firms in terms of demonstrating what they're already doing and how it's how it will be different under consumer duty. Interesting. Rob, thank you very much for walking through that. Really interesting. 
Um, yeah. Is there anything else before I go? You know, is, is there anything uh, that we haven't? Is there anything we haven't talked about that we should? One thing that ought to be deliverable but is an outstanding question is the projections regime, and this is an interesting example of the the many public body cooks in the kitchen, in pensions generally and dashboards specifically. It's quite odd that the Financial Reporting Council is responsible for producing guidance on pension projections. Technical memorandum one. Yeah. Mm. But they are, and you know, they, they take it seriously and work, work hard at it. We're not big fans of the, the idea of a, a new ASTM1. In their policy paper, they talk about the, the Joint Forum for Actuarial Regulation. Task force on this included industry bodies, so that included me. It's an interesting experience. The first part of those discussions, we said, look, we need to separate out the deliverability question, what's deliverable by the time of the dashboard staging timeline from the solution. So after going around that track a few times, industry now has a longer lead in time. So there's an extra six to 18 months to deliver a new ASTM one. And then we focused on the solution. I didn't like that either. So the, there's a number of concerns about it. One of which is that if, you know, if it's based on volatility, then your projections could be either overly optimistic or overly pessimistic uh, based on recent market movements. And that could especially be the case if you're planning to take your pension in the next few years. And as a number of people have said from international experience, people use dashboards most often shortly before they're due to retire. The concern is that those projections could be misleading. Rob, I can pretty much guarantee you they will be misleading. Um, so I had, I had a bit of a rant about this on a recent podcast. Uh, we know the projections will be wrong. And I, I'm just slightly bewildered by this kind of spurious accuracy they seem to have baked into their multiple volatility groupings and you know, it's trying to, to sort of get down to really granular levels. It, to me, it makes no sense at all. It's just, just, just work for the sake of keeping actuaries busy. I think you know, they've got the right motives that they want some degree of consistency and comparability, but I, you know, for, for dashboards to drive this doesn't make sense. In terms of bigger picture, it should be dashboards doing the projections and not each and every provider and scheme. It should be pretty basic, call it 5%. If you're invested in cash, then add a flag to it. Providers have got the functionality to do that. Uh, and that would allow dashboards to serve their real purpose, which we set out in our vision earlier this year, that you know, just finding pensions will be enough for a lot of people. But a lot of people want to interact with it and test, this is what I get if I retire at 65. What if I retire at 70? What if I put more in? You need to enable the dashboards to do that. At a minimum, let's make sure that export capabilities there, DWP is consulted on that. It would be mad to ban that. But now, further down the track, let dashboards do more. And uh, one simple thing they could do is do the projections themselves. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and I'm all, for, I'm all for simplicity. Look, you just used the word vision, and that's just kind of reminded me. <laughs> yeah, our, our pensions minister recently had a bit of a go at the industry for lacking long-term vision. Do you think that was fair? Well, I think there's a valid argument in there somewhere that you know, the industry doesn't have a, a single comprehensive vision. That's not surprising in a way because 
really it's not a single it's industry, it's yeah. several industries knitted together. You know, DB schemes very different to a SIP provider. But I think industry has shown a great deal of vision in specific areas. So the, the same event where the minister, minister talked about industries, supposed lack of vision, he talked about his own vision. The examples he gave were dashboards, click DC, and DB consolidation. And you know, credit to him and to DWP for driving those things forward. But the ideas came from industry. So dashboards, API played a, uh, an important role five years ago in making recommendations about how to take it forward and delivering a prototype. But you know, I started at ABI 10 years ago and there was an already already a project in train with Orego and IBM and some of our members about what they called at the time a virtual aggregator. So it's been going for a long time. And Cliff DC was driven by consultants five, 10 years ago and driven forward then by Royal Mail and its scheme and its union. DB consolidation stems from PLSA's DB task force and all of those things as well are contested so we've got views on DB consolidation you had John Ralph on didn't you he's, he's got he's, he's got, got he's, views he's got views certainly has views yes. he's got views on collected DC and as you suggested earlier not everyone is that keen on dashboards I don't think anyone's against it but at different degrees of enthusiasm so in that context it's not surprising that there's what not one single vision and you might expect that single comprehensive vision to fall to government. And that leads you to another question about the, the number of cooks in the kitchen. So I think DWP's view is likely to differ from treasuries and FCAs from TPRs. We really do need to draw all these things together. Where I think there's a valid argument and what the industry could do more of is talking about the wider context. So the, the report you mentioned that we produced last year touches on some of those issues like housing, interaction with means-tested benefits. But only really to say, these are wider issues we need to take account of. You know, th there are some moves in that direction. So Aviva uh, has pioneered midlife MOT, done a lot of work on the older workers agenda. Phoenix has set up a, a think tank to look specifically at the interaction of these later, later life issues. That's where I think industry could do more than it's already doing, to look at the wider context. But I'd like the government to do more of that as well. Well, I think between you and the government then, hopefully the future will be uh, innovative and bright. <laughs> Probably a good place to stop. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Thanks for your thoughts on that as well. It's good, good to hear the industry perspective on that. Well, no, pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.